Good to see you guys. Welcome to Whitewater. Uh, my name is George, one of the pastors here. And uh, Whitewater, uh, we have a few goals here, but um, probably the most important to us is to help people move forward on their spiritual journey. So it doesn't matter so much where you've been. The most important thing is is where you're headed. And so we create a, a community where you can belong before you believe. And uh, that just means like you don't have to believe what I believe to, to come uh, start f- um, following or exploring faith, building relationships. And so we want to create an environment and a community where you can start moving towards Jesus at the pace that, that makes sense for you and your family. So welcome. Glad you guys are here. We're in the book of Daniel. We're going to be picking up and running with that. Um, I'm just going to say a word of prayer and we'll, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Um, and I want to pray specifically for the for the person who came in here today who's looking for a word from you. Maybe they're seeking you or they're seeking to know if there is a God who cares for them and loves them. Lord, I pray that they would find you today. There would be a step, something that would click, something would make sense, and uh, something that would um, that would raise their eyes to see a bigger vision of what you are doing and what you're about. And so we ask, Lord, would you speak to us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Notice it doesn't say do not conform. Because um, if it just said do not conform, uh, then, you, then we'd be like, encouraged to be like uh, middle schoolers the rest of our life. Like my wife today was, we're having people over for starting point. It's an opportunity to get to meet new people at our church. So we're having people at our house. So my wife's like, you got to get your cups because I always have cups that I leave around. And I always leave the cupboards. You know, some of you guys who know me know this is like an habitual problem. I leave the cupboards open. Drives my wife crazy. And I've got my books out. And she's like, i got to clean your books. you got to do this. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm just teaching about not conforming today. And I was like, I'm not going to conform to you. Like, you can't boss me. You're not the boss of me. I'm not going to conform. She got real close to me and... And, and she just had this like, this look. I can't even describe it, but she just was like, oh, you will conform. And then kissed me. And I was both terrified and, but also like blown away and excited at the same time. It was a really weird experience. I was just like, ah, oh. she walked out. Um, not gonna conform to you and your ways. Um, we live in a world that like doesn't want to conform. And some people are like, I'm not going to conform. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to be part of this group because we're not going to conform to this group. And uh, in an effort to be different than those people, they're actually defined by the people that they don't want to be like, which is kind of interesting. Um, I had a friend who was working in a, a job. And, and she's a Christian. She knows this. It says, not to be conformed to the pattern of the world, not to be conformed to the things that are that are are, are really um, in co- in contrast to the ways of God. And uh, my friend wor- was working at a business, and the leaders of that business started to put pressure uh, on the, her department to to start making decisions that were clearly unethical. Um, and she was working in the accounting area and, the, and there was like just pressure from other people and friends and then, um, and then from the leadership and it was so uncomfortable. And, and there was a line that was, that people were being pushed to either walk kind of around and, and then a few areas to specifically cross. And she, and she knew if she made, a, she decided to stand and not conform to that, not bow to the pressure, uh, to, to, to not give in to the heat of that moment, that it probably was going to cost her her job. And so she ended up moving on from that, from that job. And, and there, I think there are so many people that want to stand for something, 
but they don't want to lose and sacrifice comfort. They don't want to, they don't want to sacrifice looking good to other people or being friends with other people. They don't want to make the sacrifice that sometimes is necessary to make a stand for the right thing. Are you with me? We are talking about this today. How do we not conform, not give in to the pressures of the moment so that we don't lose our integrity, so that we're able to stand for what's true and what's right. And for many of us who are people of faith now, I know not everybody here is a Christian and you're, you're moving towards Jesus and trying to figure that out. But, but for those of us who believe and who trust in God, there's a, there are moments where our, where our faith can be compromised. And the scriptures we're studying today well, that, is that like an alien landing thing? What is that? <laughs> Whoa. That's like the power. <laughs> did you feel it too? Because <laughs> I did. Um, <laughs> we'll see if that comes back. Um, so how do we not give in the pressure to conform in our jobs, our families, with our political beliefs, and how do we love people without conforming? Have you ever wondered this? Have you ever thought about this? And the story we're looking at in Daniel chapter 3 is all about this. This is about how to stand up under the pressure. So uh, if you will, turn to the book of Daniel chapter 3, get your Bibles out, get your app out. I know fantasy football starts today, so if you're looking at that, that's all right. Just make sure you're flipping back and forth. There's a few people in here like you're like, ah, that's funny. And you're, like, you're probably going to lose today because of that. Um, and we'll have the words up behind me. Um, and I want us to look for three things uh, as we go through this passage. This is going to be a two-part sermon. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, part of it today and the next part next week. And there's a, I w- I'm going to put this out there. As we study this, there's a connection to the New Testament that, that most people don't see. In fact, I'd never seen it before. And we're going to be talking about that next week. So get ready. We're going to kind of build it up, and then we're going to, we're going to do the, the rest of the sermon next week. But let's, let's build the foundation, uh, and let's learn how Daniel and his friends stand under pressure. In verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. About, that's about 9 stories high. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of ba- Babylon. And uh, there's an archaeologist named Julius Oper who found a place where they think might be the, what was called the Plain of Dura and found a large brick square, 45 feet per side, 25 feet high, that he believes was, was the foundation for this monstrosity. The king got on his head and said, I want a statue. And Nebuchadnezzar, as you read this story, you start to see like Hebrew humor come out. Hebrew humor is like, they, they start showing this king as this petulant child, demanding things. Like if you were here last week, Pastor Scott spoke, did a great job. If you didn't listen to it, check out that sermon. And, and the king was, King Neb, Neb, I like to call him Neb, you can call him Nebi, whatever, uh, Czar, whatever you like to call him. But King Neb, um, it last, last week was like, I want lions. Like he just, I want lions and demanded and had lions. Like he needed lions and he wanted to be seen as like this big bad king. And, uh, and then to, you know, today in this chapter, it's like, I want a golden statue, you know? 
And uh, so he builds one. In verse 2, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar sent the word to, the, to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, treasurers, judge, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces, all his leaders to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the, sat, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, and all the leaders and rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that the king had set up. Um, then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is all the leaders. It's like this big ceremony. And uh, a herald loudly proclaimed, can you imagine like a herald coming out and there's this huge monstrosity that's been built. And I kind of imagine like it's this nine story thing and, and that it might not have been built like the way it may, you know, should have been. So it's not as impressive as you'd want. And a herald comes out and everyone's kind of looking at this thing and, you know, they, they kind of unveiled it and this guy comes out and it's a herald. The dude who just, his job is to say things for the king on behalf of the king. So he comes out and he proclaims, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. He's commanding them, this herald. You are commanded when you hear the sounds of horn, flute, and zither. Does anybody know what a zither is? Or is that a zitar? Anyways. The, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And, and this guy says you all have to do this. It's a command. In England, it means compulsory. I learned that because I was going to Bible school, and they're like, Bible classes are compulsory. I was like, what's that? And I found out the next day when I slept in. I was <laughs> mandatory is what it means. It's command. you got to do this. Um, and here's the thing. When I, when I learned about this story, how many of you guys have heard this story before? Is there a few of us in here? Okay. Um, some of us might not have ever heard this story. I think it's really powerful. But when I learned this as a child and heard this story, it was always like King Nebuchadnezzar made a statue of himself. You know, like the King Neb. You know, it was him. And that's how I learned it. But it actually in the scripture doesn't say that. Uh, it could have been a, it could have been one of his gods. It could have been Marduk. One, isn't that a great name? Marduk. One of the, the gods of the Babylonians. And, uh, or it could have been him. We don't know. But the interesting thing is Hebrew humor is coming out here because the Hebrews, they don't, the writer of this, which probably Daniel or a scribe he talked to, um, they won't tell us what the statue was. Isn't that interesting? Because they're like, it doesn't matter. Because the statue didn't matter. We want, we don't want it to be remembered because it was ridiculous. The thing that matters is that there was this king that thought it mattered that he needed to have a 90 foot statue that doesn't matter. Isn't that funny? I thought it was funny. No one's laughing. Um, I thought it was hilarious. Those Hebrew humor jokes in there. Um, and they announced that everyone has to worship this thing. Verse six, but whoever does not fall down and worship, will immediately be thrown into the furnace and of blazing fire. And there's a few things here. If you guys remember two weeks ago, Daniel had a moment with King Nebuchadnezzar where he revealed a dream that had terrified Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of this, when Daniel tells him the dream and what it means, do you guys remember what uh, King Neb said? He said, Daniel, your God is the true God, the most high God, and he is the revealer of mysteries. And so like the reality of God... He became aware of God. But just, you know, another chapter over, Nebuchadnezzar is making an idol to either himself or something else and making people worship it. 
And he says, like, if you don't worship it, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. Now, the furnace we know is this is big enough to hold like four people, like that they can walk around. It's a big furnace. They probably use it for smelting and dealing with the gold and making the bricks. This huge furnace. And if you don't worship this, you're going in there. And this king who recognized that God is the revealer of mysteries is aware of God, but in his life, like, He's been able to receive the mysteries and blessings of God, but he hasn't given his whole life back to God. Does that make sense? And I don't know about you, but I, I think in our culture, it's really easy to have an awareness of God, even like God, and be a fan of God. And be like, he's the revealer of mysteries. He's amazing. But look at this statue. But like, look at all these other gods. Or, you know, at the end of the day, say, Lord, I want to receive what you have to give me. But I don't want to give my whole life to you. I want, I want to just receive from you and from other gods. That's where he's at in his spiritual journey. Now, right here, there's this threat, uh, that he gives out. If you don't worship, you're going to be thrown into the fire. Here's the reality. In today's world, when someone builds an image of something they think is really important, might want to call it an idol, might call it a mispriority, might call it just like the, the, the thing for them, the most important political view, the most important political uh, leader for them, or like it's the most important religious figure or leader, it's the most important thing in their life, it's the most important uh, family member, the most important value, whatever it is, it's like this thing that's so important to them, what happens when we lift that up above everything else and say everybody should worship that, what we do is everybody makes an oven when they have an idol. Everybody has an oven. Like, if, if you don't think that's important, you're going to be on my oven list. Does that make sense? So if you don't believe the right thing, the right political thing, this, and all of a sudden there's an oven, and it might be a metaphorical oven, you know, which it is for most people. Um, it might be this thing where it's like, well, I will find a way to get back at you. I will exclude you. Like you might be, you know, do the Dwight Schrute shunning thing. I don't know. You might be on someone's shunning list. It could be like where you're even working with people who like they have a vendetta against you and people will like verbally run you down and there might be slander or gossip. But whenever there's an idol, you can be sure there is an oven. Okay, now let's see how this plays out because now there's pressure. Everyone's supposed to obey and there's this pressure to follow uh, because the herald has said that you're supposed to follow this. Verse 7, therefore when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, uh, zither, zitar, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the golden statue that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Again, we don't know, like, maybe the statue looked horrible and people were like, this is, we have to worship this, are you kidding me? Like, eh, he said, or it's, the, or it's the oven. So everybody falls down and worships. Everybody conforms to what the king says because everyone wants to keep their jobs, no one wants trouble, everyone wants to do it, what they're supposed to do. We're conforming to to the world we're in. We're conforming to the Babylonian king. That's what everybody does. But then verse 8, some of the Chaldeans, which were the advisors of the king, took this occasion, took this opportunity to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews, the Hebrews, Daniel and his friends. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. They totally butter him up. May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, all the instruments, you get it, must follow fall down and worship the statue. (laughs) And it might be beautiful or it might have been really, really weird looking. There are some Jews 
you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At this point, they're about, they're probably in their thirties. They've been governors for the king for a number of years now. And these men have ignored you, the king. Just to remind them, you're the king. You're the big man. You're the head honcho. The big wapabonga. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I like that. I want to go by that. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden statue you have set up. They are rebelling. They're making you look foolish. They're making you look weak. Like you made this command and everybody except these three are obeying and worshiping. Now, something really quickly here. Why are they conspiring? Have you guys have... You guys know it's conspiring. You know, you've ever seen someone conspire? <laughs> my daughter and I conspire to always prank my wife. We like to prank her. We just love it to scare her. My wife, my daughter has, I think it's from a friend. She has this little spider thing that she can make, like go around on the floor and she'll always go get my wife. My wife's terrified of spiders and she'll just be, so, you know, terrified and mad. And you put that away and Novella's following her with the spider, you know, remote control. And my daughter likes to prank me. Uh, like when, I woke up really early one time and it was like 4.35 and I was like, I can't sleep. So early. So I started studying. I got some food from the fridge and I was reading. I, was, I think I was doing some sermon prep. It was like 20 minutes, 25 minutes in this thing and I you know I was like in the kitchen area and uh the art we have a couch right next to that and all of a sudden I heard this hi dad from right next I I just looked over my daughter was just sitting there she'd been there the whole time (laughs) it was just terrifying she always conspires there's times where I'll do I'll wake up late or or early or when I least expect I'll open the fridge get some food and then I'll shut the door and she'll just be standing there you know, like the shining or something. It's like red rum, red. And so these guys are conspirers and they're conspiring. Why do they conspire to rat out and to hurt Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, there's, I think there's one of four reasons. Uh, the first reason could, it could have been bigotry and racial hatred, ethnic hatred. Could have hated them because they were Hebrews. They just didn't like them. It was racism. Any of you who have experienced racism or, or been around bigotry and you've experienced it personally, the ugliness of it, or friends that have experienced it, it is, it's so awful, um, not just because it hurts, not only because it hurts, and it does, but because it's so dehumanizing. You, you become less than, overlooked, um, dispensable. It's like you don't matter. People, in many ways, can feel invisible and and it's awful. And if you've experienced that, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. No one should have to experience that. And that could have been one of the reasons why they were conspiring against them. Number two, it could have been just religious hatred. They didn't like them because of their religion. And it's interesting in history, you see people that are like, well, you know, like, uh, that say, I don't like when people, you know, hate me because of my faith and my religion. But on the other hand, it's okay if I hate other people if they have a different faith and religion. And Jesus had this thing where he was able to believe in what he believed and knew who he was, but he didn't hate other people who hated him, who disagreed with him. Number the third reason could have been they just wanted their jobs and they were jealous. They're using this as an opportunity to like rise up in the ranks. And the fourth thing is it could have been any combination of any one of these things. Be that as it may, there's this conspiring and they're trying to get rid of these three godly men. So when they tell them this, in verse 13, Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to, to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
So these men were brought before the king. Anybody at this point wondering, where's Daniel? The book is about Daniel. Why is this Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We don't know. He could have been out on business. He could have been like representing, you know, uh, Babylon to another country. We don't know, but he's not in this setting. So what we do know is that these guys who have had Daniel as their spiritual leader is gone. So they're vulnerable because the, the, the advisors who are trying to get them killed know that like Daniel was, did this big favor for the king, but Daniel's gone. So maybe we can take care of his friends and he won't have his friends to rely on. And then we can get Daniel. Like there's like this palace intrigue going on here. And, um, Nebuchadnezzar sees them before him and he asks them this Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Is it true that you, you don't serve my gods or worship the golden statue I have set up? Now, if you, if you're ready, when you hear the sounds of the horn, the flute, all the other instruments, all the music, you just see this horrible, like, leaning tower and this horrible band, here, 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 you know, everyone's, he's got to worship this thing. And, uh, he's like, he says, if you, if, if you hear it again, you can worship and you can fall down. And worship, but if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into that furnace of blazing fire. You'll be thrown into the fire. Every idol creates an oven. Because if that, if the thing that we idolize, the image that's so important, isn't important to other people, or we think that it's threatened by something, if an idol is ever threatened, it's really threatening who? King Nebuchadnezzar, the guy with all the power, feels threatened. He's insecure. When people get so angry that they're ready to throw someone in an oven, and Hitler wasn't the only guy to do this, but metaphorically, spiritually, when people are ready to do this, what it reveals when someone's that angry is that they're insecure. If someone's ever been that angry with you, if you've ever had a boss, family member that's that enraged over something like, that you just say, no, I can't do that. You're not. You're not push, you know, pushing back at them. You're not trying to hurt them. But you say no, and they get that angry. It shows that they're struggling with insecurity. Does that make sense? And now here's the question he asks, and who is the God who can rescue you from my power? This is the threat. It's not veiled at all. He's just like, who can rescue you from my power? You do this, you'll be fine. You don't, you're going in the fire. I don't care what Daniel did. I don't care what you've been, you've done for me in the past. You're going in the fire. You need to listen to me. Do what I'm asking you. Conform. So think about this. Everybody in the nation hears the music and they bow down except for three guys. Imagine the pressure they have on them. Their leader is gone. Daniel's not there. They're left open. They've got their conspirers conspiring against them. They're not, they're not ignorant of that. They're smart guys. They're, um, uh, they're in the minority. They're not worshiping. They are a minority people. They're, they're Hebrews in the middle of, of Babylon and they're standing up against the king. Think about that. Think about the pressure that's mounting against these guys, against uh, who they are and what they stand for, and uh, and how hard that would be to stand up. Not not including that, like they're under threat of death. The worst dictators and tyrants always try to like leverage death or like the worst thing that they can think of. They they try to go there really quickly because whenever their power is threatened, whenever their idols threatened, they bring out the oven. If you don't do this, I'm going to bring out the oven. I'm going to throw you in it. And what's their response 
to the heat, to the pressure, to the conformity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now listen up. This is like where I really want to focus today's sermon. Their response. Daniel's friend's response. So listen to this in 16. Nebuchadnezzar, they say, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. Does an angry boss like to hear those words? That is a gutsy thing. Now, because we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of the blazing fire. It's immediately removed, like, the power he has. They're like, yeah, God's more powerful than you. If you're a dictator, I mean, like, if you're a tyrant, if you're really angry, if you're in the throes of an idol, that's just going to tick you off. And he can rescue us from the, from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know this. We will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. We just, even if he doesn't rescue us, even if it doesn't go our way and you do throw us in there, we just want you to know this. We will never worship your stupid gods and your stupid tower. That's guts. That's courage. So what I want to, what I want to learn from these guys is how do we learn to stand? How do we learn to have this kind of courage, this kind of faith? And the first thing is learning how to stand. And I, I, as we, if we looked at this passage, this, this moment, um, you'd even see in verse 19, I just look at the response of Nebuchadnezzar so you can understand, so we can understand the power of that statement, the power of that stand that they just took when everyone else is cowering. The Nebuchadnezzar's response in verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was then filled with rage and the expression on his face changed. It wasn't like a smile. I don't think he was laughing. You guys ever seen someone in the throes of an you know, addictive idolatry and it's been threatened or you they've just been like someone is just, I don't know, someone's face when they're so angry uh, because their power is threatened, uh, it can just look like someone stepped on their cat, you know. This, um, this is my son. He had, he had something taken from him and he just wasn't. <laughs> we all were actually pretty upset because the Huskies had lost to Auburn at this point and we didn't. Uh, and he really wanted his bottle and his bottle had been taken from him because it was empty, but he wanted it. Nebuchadnezzar is, is acting like a petulant, angry child. So what can we learn from these guys who are standing up? Because here's the thing, when you stand for the truth, when you stand in truth, and, you, and, you, and it's not to hurt, it's not to harm, these guys are governors of a nation that deported them, uh, hurt them. Do you guys know that, the, that Daniel and his friends most likely were castrated? In the book of Daniel, that never mentions their children, their kids, their family. That is, that is an anomaly in Hebrew literature. Because your legacy is one of the most important. Your family is where a lot of your identity was found in these days. And so it was very important. And there's not a word of it. And who did they report to in chapter 1? Who was their boss? The head eunuch. They had lost everything. And yet they served this godless nation with this godless, gutless, violent, power-tripping king. That's incredible. And the first thing I want to notice is they stand together. They stand together. Um, 
Imagine if Meshach had come up and been like, King, we will never worship your idol. Right, guys? And they're like, already down, like, <laughs> worshiping. Listen, they're just like fully. Hey, it helps when you're together. If there's some, it, how many of you guys have people in your life that you're like, man, when things get hard, when the heat is turned up, and I'm facing the fire, these people, they're with me, they have my back, they have faith. I think, I just think it's so important. Like, we're, none of us are perfect. None of us, all of us can have fear. All of us can have doubt. And, and these three stick together. They're, they don't have their leader. Daniel's gone. And they still stick together. They don't separate. They don't divide. They stick together and they stand together in truth. And they're not, here's the thing, they don't defend themselves. That's the point number two. Don't defend yourself. Don't defend God. If you notice, like when they say, look at, we don't have to give you an answer to this question. Another inter, uh, uh, version of that is just saying, like, we don't have to defend ourselves to you. We don't answer ultimately to you, king. We answer to, to the real king. And, and so they don't defend themselves and they don't defend God. And I think so often, like if someone has a different political view than us or a different religious view and they're annoying and they're totally wrong and like we just want to put our fists up and fight or if we feel like, like someone's attacking us, like they're being attacked. Don't you say like pretty strong attack? And they're going to get thrown into the oven. Like the tendency would be to fight and maybe to, you know, get some political manipulations going on and maybe lead a rebellion or to like defend themselves, at least just like verbally defend themselves. And they they don't have their arms up because here's the thing. If you follow Christ, if you follow the king, one, you don't have to be worried about fighting for yourself. God will do the fighting for you. The other thing is like if you're trying to fight yourself, fight, you got your arms up. The Prince of Peace, the King Jesus that I serve, when his enemies were making him suffer for their disagreement, for their hatred, how did he respond? Not with fists up, but with hands outstretched. He didn't make his enemies suffer for their foolishness and for their hatred and for their evil. He suffered for their hatred. And I'm pretty sure if Jesus put his fists up, no one's going to win that fight. He put his hands outstretched. He sacrificed himself. I think that's so important. We don't defend ourselves and we don't need to defend God. So much of, I think, so much of the time, I think we attach our identity to an argument about God rather than God himself. Because when the argument or when the thing is said that we don't like, someone says something about God or about faith or about, you know, something we think is really, really important, political view that we have attached to our, our, our faith, and all of a sudden, we're ready to fight. And we need to defend God. We need to protect God. We can't let them get away with that. We got to do, 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 do. And don't get me wrong. It's important to be able to give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. But it doesn't say that we need to defend God who's like this wimp who needs our protection. Does God need you and I to protect him, to defend him? God is a big God. And he doesn't need to be defended. Number three, if you believe in God... Live as if he exists. I love this moment where it says, if the God we serve, this is verse 17, if, if the God we serve exists, just as if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. He can rescue us. How many of us need to come back to that reality? If God exists. We need to live like he exists. If God exists, why are we all worried? If 
God exists. Why are like we sitting here angry about something someone said and we're just like holding on to it? Why, if, if God exists, why are we super worried about our future? Like, like I gotta take care of myself and I gotta figure this out. I gotta fight for myself. I gotta do all these things for myself. And, and that's gonna be the, it, that becomes a habit. We're just fighting for ourselves and we're living like a functional atheist because we don't live as if God exists. When the furnace is there, we start freaking out rather than just saying, you know what? Like God's bigger than the furnace. God's bigger than your idol. God's bigger than you, little king. And he loves you and I love you. And I don't, we, we don't have to do this. But I, but I will tell you one thing. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bow. I'm not going to do it. Um, believe that God can save you. They believe that God could save, they, save them. Believe that God can save you. But even more importantly, believe that God will save you. They believe God will save us. But I love the statement. He says, but even if he doesn't, the way we want, we are not going to worship that. We are going to worship God. Um, it's really cool to see my friend Brandon and Abby here. So glad. Can we give them a hand? We're so glad that you guys are here. Um, I didn't even know you guys were going to be here today. Um, we have a... If you're a part of our church, this is a church family, and we look out for each other, we love one another. And so when we go through great times and we go through really low times, we're there for each other. And Brandon and Abby have just been through a really, and, and are still in a journey um, with their little daughter, Lily. And um, she was born with a cord wrapped around her neck. She was born septic. Her organs weren't working. And God has just miracle after miracle after miracle. God's gone ahead. And Lily's back home. You guys are back home, and um, we're just, I'm, I, personally, I'm so grateful, but I'm just praising the Lord, and thank you guys for praying and standing with them, and you as a couple, I want to thank you guys for leading in faith. Um, one of the things that Brandon said, I'll never forget, but we, it was a moment where they were, the doctors came into the, the hospital, and they were, or into the, into the room where everybody was just waiting and, you know, talking, and the little kids and family members and friends were there, and the doctor said, "Look, uh, if the organs don't start working, there's no, there's not going to be a future. She's gonna, she's gonna pass." And we all started praying. I remember Brandon just saying, "Hey, Lord, we believe that you can save Lily. We believe that you will save Lily. But even if you don't, we will still worship you." How do you have that kind of faith when you're facing the furnace? How do you have that kind of faith when you're facing the worst stuff you can ever imagine? Like, are you kidding me? Like, we're going to lose? Like, we're facing that, and I can still say I will trust in him? That's faith. And when, I, when my friend Brandon prayed that prayer, like, I can know that, and I can believe that I would say maybe something like that. But when I'm in the fire, like, I don't know what I'll say. But I know that I want to be like my friend Brandon. I know that I want to be like Daniel's friends. I want to be able... Say, God, I believe that you can, I believe that you will, but if it doesn't happen, I worship you. I'm not going to conform to that. I'm not going to give in to fear. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit following you. Lord, You, where would I go? You're our only hope. So this sermon's two parts. I want to give you two things to take away. Two things to take away today. How do we have that kind of courage? One of the things that you, I think you see in this 
is that it's clarity. We need to be able to see clearly so that we can stand with strength. Clarity creates courage. Courage can also create clarity, but clarity on who we are and what's going on and the truth of things, clarity about what's going on, clarity in our own hearts creates courage. And if you guys remember a few weeks ago, like, like toxins were raining down in the sky. We, you couldn't see anything. Like I, from my house, you couldn't see the cascades. You couldn't see, you know, a few streets away. It was so foggy, so smoky, and it was terrible. It was like toxins everywhere. It was like the worst uh, air in the world in the Seattle-Tacoma area. If you didn't recognize it, you probably, you know, breathed in the equivalent of seven packs of, you know, cigarettes a day. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. To see clearly, sometimes we have to raise above the toxins, the smoke, the fog. We have to be raised above. And one of the ways we do that, and the ways that these guys did it, was they, they looked back. They looked back so they could look forward. So let me think this through with me. Where had Meshach, Abednego, and Shadrach, which is out of order, sorry. Um, people were like, yeah, that's not right. Um, they're one entity. Where had they seen their people face worshiping a golden idol before? Back with Moses, right? At Mount Horeb, they made a calf and worshiped an idol cast for metal. They exchanged their glorious God, the eternal God, the good God who created everything. They, they exchanged him for an image of a bull. Not even a real bull, but a fake bull made of like gold, uh, which eats grass. That's in the scripture, it says that. They worshiped a thing that eats grass instead of God. And in verse 21, it says they forgot the God who saved them. They forgot. They forgot. And uh, Daniel's friends don't want to forget, so they look back so they can look forward. They look backwards so they can have clarity on what's going on right in front of them. And and um, when they worshipped the golden calf that's an image of something that eats grass, how did it go for them? Badly. <laughs> Badly, it's just bad. We have to be able to look to the past and say, when did it go bad? So I, sometimes I wonder, do we ever look back? Like we're always looking forward and we're daring to dream. We've been told all those things, but like in your dreams and all that stuff, do you ever look back to see, okay, what went badly? And learn from that and learn what went well. Let's do what went well. And when we didn't worship golden calves that are the image of something that eats grass, it went well. When we didn't, it went badly. And, and then they can look back again, even closer to their grandparents and parents. And they look at their parents, what they did in Jerusalem and in Israel and their grandparents. What did their grandparents and, and parents do? They worshiped idols and other gods, right? And how did that go? Badly. It was bad. Some of you guys are like, how did it go? <laughs> really? Mediocre? Okay. No. Like, remember, they were castrated. They went into like the Harry Potter school of wizardry and witchcraft. Hogwarts. That's right. Someone's listening. Someone's like, that's kind of cool. <laughs> they, they lost their families. They were deported from their, uh, their, their, their country of origin all the way to like 50 miles away from modern day Baghdad to Babylon. It went badly. I wonder if there are people that are struggling standing up with courage because they don't have clarity because they haven't looked back in their life to see what went badly. And what happens when we worship an idol? What happens when we conform to the world? 
And it, and it clarified from, for the, Daniel's friends that it was better to be thrown into an oven than to worship that monstrosity, that stupid idol. It was clear. Now here's, here's the last thing I want you to take away. And again, next week we're going to be finishing this, but the, the, here's the last thing. Clarity comes by looking up. Clarity comes by looking to God. Clarity comes by having a relationship with Him, walking with Him. I was talking with a friend recently, and we've seen so many Christ followers, Jesus followers, Christians that are struggling with anger, struggling with um, toxic habits, struggling with anxiety, like tons of anxiety, tons of worry, tons of, like depression, and 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 worried about this, worried about worrying, and you know, uh, just so weighed down. Functionally, they don't look much different than people who aren't following Christ. But if God exists, we don't have to be afraid of the things that the world is afraid of. If God exists, we can walk with Him. We can get to know Him. And what we've talked, when I was talking with my friend, we were just like, man, I wonder, I wonder if this is a sign. Now, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if it's a sign. If a, po- a lot of people like the idea of God, they like the gifts of God, but I wonder if, how many people are actually walking with God? Like, have an actual relationship with Him. Like, actually when trouble happens, they don't turn to the internet, they don't turn to this expert, that expert, this, you know, news channel, that news channel. They don't turn to all the things that the world turns to and gets more worried and more angry and more polarized and wanting to fight each other more and getting farther and farther and more divided. And Christians, we gotta see through that crap. That's crap. And I wonder if it's happening because we're not spending time with God. My daughter gets a lot more afraid of the dark the farther away she is from me and Sarah. But when she's with us, like the darkness isn't so dark. I learned last week from Pastor Scott that Daniel, three days, three times a day, would pray and spend time with the Lord, open his windows like, and remind himself that like he's just this little man in this great wide world and he can't figure out all the mysteries and he can't solve all the issues and he can't mend what's been broken between people and he, he's in this wicked, awful Babylon and he's serving this you know, maniacal, egotistical king and but he had to meet three times a day with the Lord to just be sane and to hear God's voice and to walk with him and and I wonder in our culture, in our day and age, with the fears that we have and like the, the stuff that faces us on a daily basis and then, you know, once a year, twice a year, it seems like there's just these catastrophes that happen. I wonder how often should we be meeting with the Lord? My grandpa started walking with the Lord. He said he wanted to read the Bible, but he's dyslexic and he knows that people that know Jesus, they, they, they read the Bible really well and he couldn't read really well. So he, he's like, I, I determined I was going to read just a little bit as much as I could, but I could learn how to pray. My dyslexia did not keep me from praying. So he started praying. He heard, one guy told him, I pray an hour a day. And he's like, I'm going to do that. I'm gonna, uh, he determined, I'm going to pray an hour a day. Some of us, that's like, that's crazy. What, an hour? And so he started. He said, you know what happened? The first morning I got my Bible out, read it, sat on the couch, started praying. Pray an hour. You know what happened? No, Grandpa, what happened? It's like, I woke up five minutes later. <laughs> you know what happened the next day? Got my Bible out. Read a little bit, started praying. You know what happened? No, Grandpa, what happened? It's like I woke up six minutes later. <laughs> the next day, seven minutes later. The next day, three minutes later. 
And he said, but I determined I wasn't going to like give God up. I wasn't going to just conform and turn to these other things. I was going to learn to walk with God. I was going to learn to listen to him. It wasn't about just like this, it wasn't just a discipline. It wasn't just like a religious thing to do. I wanted to meet with God and hear from him and, and have him help me. And, and you guys, today in my grandpa's life, he's built a spiritual life where like he doesn't, he doesn't just sit in the morning and do that and read the scriptures. That's not his only thing. He's, he tells me like what I, I just walk with the Lord. I thank him. When me, when his wife, my grandma Novella was alive, they would drive places and every time they'd park, they'd just thank God for what he was doing in their life. Thank God for the experience they were going to go through. They'd pray for their next, the next meeting they had together or the next time together. They just walked with the Lord. And friends, if you get anything from today, if you're going to stand under the pressure, if you're not going to conform, you have to be able to look up Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off of what's evil and what's wrong, what's bad. And look up sometimes to look at what is good. And start walking with the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We're grateful for you. Thank you for the story of Daniel and his friends. Lord, thank you that like we don't have to be like some super leader like Daniel seems to be. We can be one of his friends. And we can stand up against the king. We can stand up against the idols. We can stand up against conforming to the evil things of this world. And we can hold on to what's true. Father, I pray for those who, if they're honest, they love you. They want to do the right thing. They want to know how to live with you. But they're struggling prioritizing time with you. Lord, would you help them? Would you help them determine? Would you help them to steal their heart? Would you help them to make a commitment? Lord, I will not be denied of a relationship with you. I might have all kinds of things imperfect in my life. I might make all sorts of lousy decisions. I might just have all kinds of problems. But Lord, I am going to get to know you. I'm going to walk with you. Lord, I pray that they would make that commitment and begin to live into that and conform their lives to you, Jesus. Amen.